to Your American Heritage with your host, Ed Bondarenka. Our goal is to provide a platform for a discussion of pro-life, pro-Christian, and pro-American constitutional principles in the light of current and historical events. America, bless God. Good morning. Welcome to Your American Heritage. We're starting out on a better foot this day than we did last Saturday. I thank you for joining us. Uh, as it said in the promo, our goal is to examine current events in the light of biblical and conservative American principles. I, what are biblical principles? Well, some of them are like, thou shalt not murder, particularly little children who are innocent in the womb. Charity, love, justice, legal justice for all people. Now, one of the focus points of this show is to bring access to knowledgeable and trustworthy sources, to have a conversation. The conversation means that you as a listener can also call in and ask these sources that we bring to discuss these current events and, uh, and uh, activities. So having said that, uh, one of my favorite radio shows at one time uh, when he was on the air, and uh, that was the Bill Bennett radio show. And Bill had a saying that uh, was attributed to some Greek guy, I think, whose name escapes me, but everything should be done with intelligence, candor, and goodwill. So along those lines, that's the direction I'd like to take this show, intelligence, candor, and goodwill. I'd also like to open in prayer. Now, if you don't mind, join me. Father, I ask right now that you would lead us and guide us in this discussion, that you would help us to pursue topics and find truth in them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, having said all that, uh, and I'd like to, for those who don't know, the phone number is 734-822-1600, and I'd like you to actually hold off on calling for a bit until we establish some of the topic and uh, talking points. I have on the line with me today, David Coleman. David Coleman is of Coleman Legal Group. He's a member of and a co-founder of Salt and Life Global, I believe, I think I got that right. And uh, he's the senior legal counsel to Great Lakes Justice Center. And David's been involved in a number of cases. I'm gonna let him talk about them and, and who he is and what he's done and his group at a better length than I can because He's obviously more familiar with himself than I am. So, eh, having said all that, let me introduce you to David Coleman. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Ed. Great to be with you. All right. So, um, having said all that about what the focus of our show should be and um, current events, one of the biggest current events that we're seeing right now Oh, on a, on a macro scale, on a macro scale is an assault on our freedoms and liberties uh, by certain political elements in this country. That's a macro scale. That's national, tearing down uh, monuments, uh, filing court cases against uh, religious groups, uh, citizenry, uh, overreact, uh, overreaching of government into individuals' lives, uh, basically, in my mind, trampling the Constitution. And you've been involved 
on a, a smaller scale, so to speak. I mean, all all battles in the larger war are important. And um, you've been involved in a lot of the court and legal battles here in Michigan, right? That's right. I've uh, been in practice for about 38 years now. It just makes me feel old when I say that. <laughs> well, when you're done practicing, you'll be really good at it, right? That's right. Maybe, maybe I'll get there if I keep keep working at it. Uh, <laughs> but I have uh, uh, our legal firm is Common Legal Group. And I worked with my dad. My dad was a uh, judge here in the Lansing area uh, for over 30 years. And then we practiced law together for a few years before he passed. And now my son practices with me. He's been an attorney for 10 years. So he's third generation. And it's been a, we have a general practice, and it, but it's been a real privilege over the years to get involved in a number of church state issues, homeschooling, things like that. And we could talk about those things later. But then about seven years ago, uh, Will Wagner and I, Professor Wagner, started Great Lakes Justice Center along with my son. And uh, over some of the issues that we saw coming down the pike, and of course now you're seeing it accelerate big time in the last year or so, six months especially, uh, the attacks on our constitutional rights. And Great Lakes Justice Center is the legal branch of Salt and Light Global. William started Salt and Light about 20 years ago. And well, tell us a little bit about the mission statement for Salt and Life. And I, well, I, I want to—I want you to say that clearly because the times I've heard you guys on the Gruber show and others, and advertising, it's always come out like Salt and Light or Salt and Life, and I've never been clear. Say it slowly and just think. Yeah, it's Salt and Light Global, obviously from Matthew, and the idea is for Salt and Light is to be just that—Salt and Light in the world, in our communities, in our state, in our country and helping to educate people as to their uh, rights as citizens and, uh, and of course, season it all with biblical reasoning and, and biblical concepts that, that we hope will be effective for people so they can understand uh, how best to engage with culture. That's kind of and Salt and Light's goal. Um, Great Lakes Justice Center. We got light. Center, yes. Be we that got light. light and salt is a preservative, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, And then that's part of why we started Great Lakes Justice Center is to be a little more active on the legal side. We've done some litigation uh, in some cases, and we've also uh, more practiced at the appellate level. We file amicus briefs. They're called friend of the court briefs in cases on behalf of many organizations from right to life to um, a large African-American uh, pastors organization. They have 25,000 pastors in the country. We've represented them in cases, and we filed briefs at the appellate level and the Supreme Court. We've This year alone, I think we filed three amicus briefs at the U.S. Supreme Court in various cases. So we, we have a pretty broad uh, array of cases. One of the things we've handled is down in Florida, we represented uh, Beckwith Electric Company because the Obama administration had come in under uh, the Affordable Care Act requiring them to pay for abortions and contraceptives through their health plan for their employees. And they were threatening threatening them with fines of $5 million uh, if they did not comply. We filed suit. We got an injunction to stop that. And we actually just settled the case uh, a few weeks ago with a permanent injunction that allows uh, our client to continue his operation without paying for those uh, abortion services. So a victory. 
Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Why haven't I heard this in the news? Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good okay. question. We put it out there, but it's just, you know, there was another organization that had also filed and they obtained an objection also. So, um, you know, that, I think that's a big win uh, for businesses all around the country, for sure. You know, one of the things that uh, I was, and and to be frank, folks, um, I'm, I'm happy to talk to Dave Coleman today. Uh, we originally were going to talk to Bill Wagner. Uh, he had stuff that came up and he highly recommended that I, I talk to Dave. And, um, and I'm grateful for that, too, because uh, um, I'm finding that. Dave has a lot of experience in stuff that um, that I'm interested in. I believe you're interested in. For instance, we're all aware of Carl Mankey. And Dave, you were involved in the, the Carl Mankey and still are involved in the Carl Mankey case. Is that right? That's right. We're Carl's attorney. And so that's been a very interesting case. I can maybe give you some details, maybe some things the listeners haven't heard uh, involving his case for sure. And so... What I was where I was going with that was I was going to talk to uh, uh, Professor Wagner more about some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, and we may do that. But it seems like, and when you were mentioning this case that you won in Florida, we've been having more victories in the Supreme Court, I believe, than we've been celebrating, and yet we've been overly concerned about a couple of rulings that did not go exactly the way we would like, and I'm looking at you, Neil Gorsuch. And of course, yeah. there's also, um, and there was the DACA case, which I believe was more on a technicality. It wasn't a, it may have been a dodge, you know, but it was more like go back and try again. We're not telling you no, but you have to form, you have to form your question in the form of a question, sort of like playing Jeopardy, right? Right, right, absolutely. And then there was Lady Guadalupe, I mean, along those religious liberty rights and, and uh, Obamacare and what you must and must not do under Obamacare. Uh, yet we do have Obamacare because of the uh, chief of the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice uh, Roberts, who just decided to make law himself, it seems. Did I get that wrong or is he? did he really do that? Uh, he really did that. The, the way he ruled, he actually ruled in our, our favor. Uh, on the case, but then, uh, you know, on the Commerce Clause and the other constitutional issues saying that uh, Obamacare was not constitutional under those issues. And then he brought up a whole new issue that nobody argued and even the government argued it, it wasn't applicable and didn't apply. That it wasn't attacked and they and said it was. Tax. Yeah, that it was a tax. And everybody agreed it was not a tax, all the lawyers on all sides. And Chief Justice Roberts writes, oh, well, you know what? I think it is a tax. And because it's a tax, that makes it legal. And that's how he upheld Obamacare. It was just, uh, frankly, an unbelievable decision by Justice Roberts. Well, in this case with uh, uh, abortion in, is it Louisiana that uh, had to do with admitting? Yeah, we weighed in on that case, also filed an amicus brief. And in fact, that was the one where uh, the law required abortion providers to have hospital admitting privileges at a hospital within a certain distance from the uh, abortion clinic. I think it was 30 miles or something like that. And where the court had upheld that sort of a, a, a law just a few years ago, now they've said it's not, you know, you can't do that. And it was Roberts, once again, who provided the fifth vote to reverse that. And as I and said, he reversed we, himself, right? Yeah, he reversed himself. 
And we filed an, uh, a friend of the court brief in the Supreme Court on that case. And it was kind of gratifying in a way. I mean, we're, uh, we were not happy with the ruling, obviously. But both Justice Alito and Justice Thomas in their dissents um, took very clear portions from our briefs that the arguments we were making and adopted them into their dissents. And so we're, you know, we're at least gratified that they're reading our briefs and that we're having some impact. But unfortunately, we didn't get that fifth vote. And so why Roberts reversed himself and switched on that is anybody's guess. I don't know. Well, he claims stare decisis, right? That it was already settled. And so, you know, we're not going to look at it again, which is kind of scary in light of Roe v. Wade when that comes up again. Right. Exactly. But given given those given those setbacks, we we did get uh, what is it, Sela Law versus uh, the uh, Consumer Finance Protection Board or something like that. Mm-hmm. That basically Congress had said, "Oh, here's a federal agency, President Trump, that you, as the executive officer of the of the government, are not allowed to interfere with," which is like a, a real stretch. And right. Supreme Court ruled that. Yes, he can, right? Yes, he can, right. That was a very good decision, right. That's, so, a, that's a slap at the swamp, right? It sure is. And, you know, I agree with you, Ed, that, you know, we, we tend to focus on the cases where we've lost and we didn't get a good decision. But there have been quite a few decisions like, your, like this one, like the recent one that, that religious organizations and churches can um, use their religious beliefs in determining who they hire as teachers and pastors and things like that. So there have been some good decisions coming down. Also, it's it's a mixed bag. That was that was Lady of Guadalupe, right? Right. Uh huh. That's one we hear we hear the terms of, and we hear these terms, especially if we're listening to Fox News on the hour, and we're wondering what was that about because it's like a phrase, and then you know, like that was it. There's no analysis unless right. you're willing to listen to a show like this or oh, one of those other lesser shows like Hannity or uh, Tucker Carlson, you know. Right. And of course, the case dealing with the Blaine Amendment, you know, that uh, the uh, Supreme Court through essentially overruled all the Blaine Amendments that uh, many, I think, 35 plus maybe more states had a Blaine Amendment around the country. And the Supreme Court said with Blaine Amendments are those laws uh, references a, a senator from back in the 1800s, Blaine, who came up with this. It was a very anti-Catholic uh, law aimed at the Catholic church, but that the state could not fund in any way private schools or, or private organizations. And the Supreme Court has overturned that. Now, I kind of have mixed feelings about that case. I mean, I think it's good that the Blaine Amendments are thrown out, but it's the whole Hillsdale College, uh, Grove City, you know, college argument that if you accept state money or you accept federal money, then they can dictate to you you know, certain things like how you teach, what you teach, and those sorts of things. There are strings that come with the money. And so I think in the sense that the Blaine Amendments got thrown out and if uh, schools want to participate, they can, but they need to be careful about that because they might find their curriculum being dictated by the state. And so we may be financing madrasas. Yeah. We might be financing madrasas, you know, which is something that I'm sure a number of uh, number of people would find a problem right. with but what it also did was it free it does free up tax credits which are as financial incentives financial money that goes back to the parents directly and it has no relationship to the school and the parents get a tax break a tax credit if they send their kids to a private school so it does free that up also 
And so okay. we would be encouraging that sort of a, an approach for private schools. Um, we would definitely caution you against taking government money because um, the strings come with it. But to get a tax credit through now, you can because the Blaine Amendment is gone. The Blaine laws are gone. So that was a very positive case overall, I think. Yeah, that was Espinosa v. Montana, right? Yeah. I was just mm -hmm. trying to show I did some research for the show, <laughs> you know, just showing off a little here. I know nothing, you know, right. but hey, I can I know how to Google or DuckDuckGo. <laughs> I don't want to offend people. So, all right. So we had some wins and it's not all as bleak as we might think. You know, the whole conservative uh, religious, um, there's a project that, you know, we're trying to get uh, conservative Christian uh, judges appointed and we seem to be doing a good job of that uh, yes. with the Trump administration and there are some like I think Senator Holly who's like oh no throw up our arms and leave because we had a fail you know and and that's not that's missing the point of the overall right. victories we've been having and speaking of victories tell us about some of the victories you've been having say with Carl Mankey the barber in Owasso right yeah Carl is uh, that's been a really interesting case to be involved in. We've been representing Carl since almost the, the beginning. He, he um, opened up his barbershop May 4th, obviously in violation of the governor's executive orders, and we can get into those things a little later. But he opened up because he basically said, look, I've been shut down for two months. Uh, I have to pay my bills. <laughs> I don't have any People income. People need a haircut. Yeah, exactly. And there's questions and issues about whether or not these executive orders are even valid or not. It's our position they are not. And obviously the Michigan Supreme Court's gonna have to weigh in on that at some point here, and they will soon. But he I started- Define soon. Care. Yeah. You just said something, define soon, please. Yeah, the, well, the Supreme Court, there was a case filed uh, by the Mackinac Center on behalf of some medical professionals, nurses, doctors, people like that. And they filed it in federal court and the federal judge sent the case back to the Michigan Supreme Court to certify to answer some questions regarding Michigan law. Specifically, are the governor's executive orders legal and valid and binding today? Because, of course, she's not had legislative approval since the end of April. And it's our contention that under the law, the 1976 emergency law, she must have legislative concurrence and approval or her orders are totally unlawful. They're illegal. They're on. They're they're not valid, and so that judge sent it to our Michigan Supreme Court. The Michigan Supreme Court accepted that certification, set a briefing schedule, and they are having oral arguments September second. So about six weeks from now, our Supreme Court will be deciding these issues on the executive orders, and whether or not they're valid. What the governor is doing is is she's acting under a different emergency law, which is a 1945 law, and claiming that well, there's no um, requirement for legislative approval under that law. So I'm doing all this under the 1945 law. The only problem with that is when you look at the two laws, the only one that deals with public health and epidemics, specifically the statute talks about epidemics. The only statute that does that is the 1976 law. The 1945 law has nothing to do with that. And in fact, in 1976 and 75 and six, when the legislature was considering passing that law, Governor Milliken ran around the state trying to push for the adoption of this law because he claimed, I don't have any authority to declare a statewide emergency. 
I can't do it because the 1945 law was only to deal with riots in very localized area in cities. At that point, it was in Detroit. There'd been a lot of riots back at that point and during World War II and things. So everybody understood that the 1945 law did not allow the governor to declare a statewide emergency. Everybody understood that, I guess, I except Governor Whitmer and all the Democrats and the left people, progressives today. They don't understand it. They're just trying to now change it and make the law cover something that it has never covered. And so that's what the Supreme Court will be deciding in, in a couple of weeks, beginning of I September. Think the, I think the, the actual word that Milliken was using back at that time was epidemic, that that yeah. was his concern, that, you know, exactly the situation we find ourselves. I have, I've, I understand that she cannot, and like I was telling you earlier offline, I was keeping track of the uh, database of the executive orders. And folks, you can go online to Mishgov and you can see all the executive orders. You can read all of them. And I was keeping a spreadsheet trying to keep track of what rescinded what, what changed wording. And a lot of times one will exactly look like the other, except a couple words were changed. Like in the example of uh, executive order 70 that she changed because of your lawsuit, right? Right. Where churches could meet. One section got changed. But instead of just saying, oh, we change this, the whole thing gets published again and the previous one gets rescinded and it gets to where, you know, where do we stand with these? But my question is, she's obviously not allowed to extend legally. She can't. There's no justification for that. But I and I haven't heard this claimed anywhere and I'm not trying to give her defense, but it appears that what she did was she just decided nothing constrains me from declaring another emergency. And so it's like it's a fresh emergency that, you know, is really we recognize as a continuance. Right. In fact, in the oral arguments that were held in, a, in another case, we've, we've had a court of claims judge, Judge Stevens, rule, and that case is on appeal also. But she ruled that the governor could not act under the 1976 law because of the legislative approval requirement but ruled she could do it under the 1945 law. And that's why I keep saying this is going to end up at our Supreme Court. And I think Judge Stevens is wrong. Clearly, she's wrong um, mm -hmm. under the history and the use of these laws in the past and the fact that epidemic is only covered under the 76 law. But that's what she's doing. And so um, these issues and, and uh, you know, there's so many cases right now. They're all over the state and everybody's kind of up in the air and doesn't really know what's required or is not required. Okay. Well, I'm expecting, yeah. I'm expecting a hand signal from Derek shortly because it's getting up to 30 seconds before and the music should start playing. He's giving us the thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. I managed to get that part right. So um, <laughs> we're going to come back after the break and folks, I want you to join us and feel free to call in 734-822-1600. Thanks, David. See you after the break. Welcome back to Your American Heritage. That, of course, was Casting Crowns playing 
We Were Meant to Be Courageous or Courageous from the movie Courageous, which is very inspirational. I highly recommend you see any of the Kendricks Brothers movies, including, if you can find it, their first work, which was uh, more of a promo for their church, but a hilarious movie called uh, uh, Flywheel about a used car salesman and how he comes to Jesus. And, of course, you can guess. It, it's good. And if you've seen Facing the Giants or any of their other works, uh, particularly Courageous, uh, I find them very inspirational. And that music in particular, we need to be courageous. And somebody who's been courageous, there's a lead-in, is our guest, David Coleman. And David Coleman is the uh, senior legal counsel to the Great Lakes Justice Center. And in the first half hour, we were talking about uh, some of the legal issues that face America, uh, face Americans. And he was going to describe some of the cases he's been involved in, particularly Carl Mankey. Uh, we do have a caller right now, and I do want to sort of a uh, ask the professor type of activity here. We want to bring forth to you experts that if you have questions I don't think of, which is probably true, then feel free to call in at 734-822-1600. I have a few more questions, but we're going to let Tim from Westland ask a question right now before we proceed. Tim, how are you doing? Fabulous. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, the Supreme Court recently made the faithless elector decision, and actually the they accused the wrong people of being faithless to the Constitution. The Supreme Court redefined the word manner and appoint as it applies to the appointment of electors. Their decision, the cases were Chiafalo v. Washington and Baca v. Colorado. The decision that they made gutted entire sections of Title III of the United States Code. And the United States was not a party to the cases. Nobody was there to defend the laws of the United States that the Supreme Court was allegedly bound to by the Article 6 clause of the Constitution. I'm wondering okay. what 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 repercussions how do we how do we the people get something like that fixed? Dave, you want Take that. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. I've heard so many different arguments about this. People arguing this is a plus. People like Tim and some other co-hosts, I think Janice Daniels on her show was was decrying this. So it depends, was, I think, on how that it's was presented. Me. That was Dave. me that she interviewed about the book I wrote, The Electoral College for Patriots, last week. Right. I was on her show. And the, yep. so the, the Title Three of the United States Code covers the first 21 sections of it, cover every aspect of the Electoral College from, from start to finish. And they gutted entire sections of that law, and the United States was not a party to the case. The Solicitor General was not arguing on behalf of the government and their supremacy clause. It's, it's a ridiculous decision. I can't believe they didn't even mention Title Three of the United States Code. Okay, Tim? Give me a second. For one, I want to let Dave respond. And two, I want to uh, encourage anybody who wants to hear more of Tim's approach to this to get the archive of the Janice Daniels show that I actually post on Facebook and to anchor.com for her. So, uh, And I listened Thank to that, that again last week twice. So please, Dave, do you have a comment on this? And thanks for calling, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh I think Tim sounds like he's a lot more knowledgeable on this topic than I am. <laughs> I am not 
an elections law uh, expert by any stretch. I am somewhat aware of the decision on the Electoral College, but I will admit that that's not something that I specialize in or, or work on that much. As I understand the decision, the court basically said, well, states can't require the electors to vote the way the state has the vote went out, but it also gave them the option to pass a law to say that they weren't bound. And so I, you know, they still have to get, I think, 37 states agreeing to that pact that they're trying to get through oh, the that would allow that. But um, yeah, as I understood, it was kind of a mixed bag, but I will say I have not looked closely at that issue. Okay, well, maybe that's something we'll take up at a later time, and and we may revisit that with Tim. I think it was uh, it was done very well, like I said last weekend on Janice's show. And Tim, thanks for calling. But since you're the only expert, and you've already <laughs> voiced your opinion, uh, we're going to move on. Okay, thanks a lot. And if anybody else has a question for uh, Dave Coleman, like I said, he's the uh, senior legal counsel for Great Lakes Justice Center. And um, they've been involved in a lot of our, our uh, cases before the court. And once again, he's going to start talking about Carl Mankey again and some of the ramifications of that. Sure. Uh, Carl, again, he's a barber in Owasso. He's 77 years old. He's been cutting hair for about 60 years now. <clears throat> he's never had an issue, never had a complaint, never had his license suspended or any problems like that. No criminal background. And yet the state went after him big time uh, when he decided to uh, take the position that those executive orders of the governor after April 28th were no longer valid or lawful, which again is our position. Uh, and that's what we're arguing in our court cases. But they came after Carl three different ways, Ed. Uh, they came after him for a criminal violation. It's a misdemeanor under the governor's executive orders to violate her order. You can get a $500 fine and up to 90 days in jail, 93 days, whatever it is. Um, so it's a misdemeanor charge, criminal charge against him. Secondly, they came af after him through his license. And there's an occupational code in our state. And LARA, L-A-R-A, the Licensing and Regulation Authority in Michigan, that regulates all kinds of businesses, including uh, barbers. You know, they regulate car mechanics, nail salons, you know, all kinds of businesses. And so what they've done is taken action to try to rescind or take away his license. And that's the second way they came after him, which, of course, destroys his business and destroys his livelihood if they succeed in that. And then the third way they went after him was through a state health director, uh, the director of DHHS, uh, Mr. Gordon in Michigan, issued an abatement order, it's called. It's like a cease and desist order, alleging that Carl was a threat to the public health, safety, and welfare because he was cutting hair and conceivably, theoretically, might spread the COVID virus. And so therefore they issued an order requiring him to shut down. And those were the three ways they went after him. That order, the abatement order, when Carl continued to cut hair, the state went to the circuit judge in Shiawassee County, asked for a court order. He denied the order. The, they wanted to shut Carl down because um, the abatement order in and of itself has no authority. It's not binding. It's just this agency's order. They have to go to court to get it enforced. When the circuit judge refused, they went to the Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals reversed the circuit judge ordered that the injunction be issued against Carl. 
And then we appealed from the Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court. And that's probably what most folks heard about because the Michigan Supreme Court ruled 7-0 our way, which almost you almost never get a 7-0 uh, ruling on anything. And uh, ruled that no, that the Court of Appeals was wrong and reversed the injunction. And so during all that time, Carl kept working. And then the state agreed to dismiss that lawsuit. So that avenue is over now. We won in the Supreme Court. The state dropped that lawsuit under the public health threat issue. The licensing issue, they issued a summary suspension of his license. Carl kept cutting hair. And then when the governor opened up all barbers and hair salons in the state on June 15th, they agreed to dismiss the uh, um, suspension of his license, at least at that, that point. But now we're still involved in the underlying complaint. We had a full day hearing on Wednesday and the state is still trying to get sanctions against uh, Carl's license. And the criminal case, we finally held some first hearings in the last couple of weeks. We had a pretrial on uh, Monday, this past Monday. And the prosecutor in that case agreed to push this out until we see what the Supreme Court rules in September, as wow. I said earlier, that they're going to be issuing a ruling on these executive orders. Because if the Supreme Court says these executive orders are illegal, then the criminal case goes away because it's based on the executive yeah. order. Yeah. So that's kind of a nutshell of what's going on with Carl and the three ways. And it's really sad because the governor is weaponizing state agencies against businesses. She's that's weaponizing what I like. I'd like She's to ask going you about after that. them to try to take their livelihood and it directly contradicts a ruling um, from the Court of Claims where uh, Judge Murray, who is the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, also sits in the Court of Claims, which is a trial court for any lawsuits against the state of Michigan. He ruled recently that the state, that the governor cannot use agencies and expand any penalties for somebody violating her orders beyond a misdemeanor. Because the state laws, the 45 law and the 76 law, both say if anybody violates an executive order, it's a misdemeanor. And Judge Murray ruled that's the only penalty. And so there was a case where they were trying to enforce MIOSHA uh, regulations and changing those against some uh, companies. And Judge Murray said, nope, you can't do that. So we're making the same arguments here that you can't go against Carl for his license because it goes too far. All right. Well, Dave, that and that goes to a point that I wanted to bring up. And we've got a caller, Joe from Wyandotte, who we're going to, uh, before we let Joe change the topic, we're going to, um, I want to ask Carl one more thing about this. When the governor uses regulatory agencies and weaponizes them, like you said, is it legal for the governor or the governess? I, I imagine her dressed a certain way when I say governess, you know, a stern uh, uh, leather clad governess. And is it legal for her to change the regulations? I mean, isn't that a legislative activity to say, look, this is these are the you know you have to go to school, you have to have a clean uh, floor, you have to have you have to have these things that sterilize your instruments, and these are all things that you have to do to protect the public safety. And the, these are legislative activities, aren't they? That set these guidelines, or at least their staff comes up with them and they vote on them, or can the regulative agency just willy-nilly at the whim of the governor change the change the uh, uh, parameters, so to speak? Right. No, and that's clearly what Judge Murray ruled, is that they can't do that. They can't expand 
uh, the agency power through an executive order. It has to be done. There's a rulemaking process that is set out in our Administrative Procedures Act. And agencies can promulgate rules, but it requires legislative approval. And if they don't go through that process, then those rules are are not rules. They're policies, and they cannot be enforced on anyone. Okay, that's great. Hey, uh, Derek, would you put Joe from Wyandotte on, please? Hey, how are you? Is Real this good, the uh, American Heritage Pizza Emporium? I like a delivery, please. <laughs> <laughs> what what would you like on your pizza, Joe? We don't deliver to Wyandotte, though. No. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask the guest opinions and whether he supports either of the uh, petition drives regarding the emergency powers and trying to limit the governor. I support the Unlock Michigan one, which strictly repeals the uh, 40s Act. And death, you know, right, and so that the 76 Act is a full repeal and replace, as opposed to Catherine Henry's, which, not to promote Janice Daniels again, had three whole shows covering a lot of the unintended consequences of her adding thousands of new words to the Constitution, including one detrimental to the pro life movement with her bodily integrity statement. Where is my body, my choice? Where do we hear that all the time? I'd like your thoughts on those two uh, uh, initiatives. Sure. I'd be happy to respond, Ed. Uh, I I agree with you, Joe. Um, I think the constitutional uh, ballot proposal with that has, you know, dozens and dozens of changes, I don't think will be upheld in court because our Constitution requires if it's that many changes, you have to have a constitutional convention. So I, I don't wow. think that's going to go anywhere. Um, I, I think that it's too bad that they are not getting approval beforehand like the other ballot question did um, because this before people waste their time and go out and collect signatures for something, I think the courts will throw out even if they get the signatures. Um, so I we do not support that constitutional amendment uh, push. Now, the one for the the specific one, though, the 1945 ballot proposal question to repeal the 1945 law, absolutely, that's a fantastic ballot question that has been approved and is now collecting signatures. And if that gets passed, if we get enough signatures, it's over, I think, 330,000, something like that, signatures in 180 days. So basically by the end of the year, then the legislature can adopt that that ballot question, which is the, you know, to repeal the 1945 law and Governor Whitmer cannot veto it. And it won't even go on the ballot. If the legislature approves it, it's a done deal. And I believe they will. So that is definitely a great thing to go after because that's what the governor's acting under right now is the 1945 law. And that's why she's so actively opposing that ballot question. So people need to get out there, find out where they can sign and get that around to their neighbors. That's something that we really need to do because that will stop Governor Whitmer from everything she's been doing since the end of April. Yeah, we are on the same page there. That's the Unlock Michigan petition initiative to repeal the 1945. And I agree, we are on the same page. I do not support the Stand Up Michigan Catherine Hendry initiative 
which has already been collecting signatures. And the fact that there are two of them out there confuses people, too. They don't know whether they've signed one or the other or that they're even different. And, and the same thing may happen if we have two recall petitions. People are going to be confused, and it hampers the signature collection process. And I'm glad you uh, clarified the law because I've been trying to get people to understand that. We go around Whitmer with the 1945 repeal. The legislature adopts it. She has no say in the matter. That's an important point that you clarified. Thank you, gentlemen. God bless you. Take care. Love you, brothers. Have a good one. Thanks, Joe. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling, Joe. And uh, thank you, uh, Dave Coleman, for, uh, for your succinct answer on that. I hadn't considered... The fact that uh, the Catherine Henry, I'm just, just for short, the Catherine Henry Amendment would be thrown out on those grounds. What do you think on the merit of, of what she's proposing, however? Just, well, do you I think there's opinion? a lot of merit to a lot of the issues she's raising and all of that. I, I don't dispute that. But again, it's just too many. I, you know, The problem is ballot questions are supposed to be very narrowly defined and maybe one, maybe two issues. Otherwise, they're not going to be upheld in court. Okay. I thought that her ballot initiative was the whole body of this this constitutional amendment. So I didn't yeah. think she was actually putting the whole, how do I put this? The whole phrasing of the amendment is, maybe I'm wrong on this. So I'm glad you're here. <laughs> well, glad to, glad to weigh in on that. Yep. All right. And thanks, Joe, for that call, because that helped clarify some things I did have on the agenda here. I wanted to ask Dave's opinion of the of the uh, constitutional amendment. So we've got that settled. That that up actually helped me make up my mind on that. I appreciate that. So I, go ahead. Yeah, Ed, I, I know I've been getting, we've been getting a lot of questions this week from people about the masks situation. Yes. And if I could address that briefly, Please. I can let folks know what we're doing there. Many of you know that a week ago, Executive Order 147 was, uh, um, enacted a week ago requiring everybody to wear masks inside public uh, facilities, stores, things like that. And uh, then she made a new amendment to that order yesterday. Uh, Executive Order 153 replaces 147. And we have uh, put up together a notice that we are suggesting people use if you're a business and what she did was she was responding directly to the notices that we put out and businesses were using that we were telling people, well, if somebody comes into your business and they're not wearing a mask, you could assume as a business owner that they had a medical condition because that's an exception to the use of, wear, of requirement to wear a mask. If you have a medical condition that does not allow you to tolerate a mask, you don't have to wear a mask. So the governor came out yesterday and said, well, you businesses cannot assume. <laughs> that if somebody comes in. Yes, but that, that brings uh, up a point. That brings up a question I was going to ask you. Under HIPAA law, can they ask me for my no. medical? So basically, no. I can walk into Menards and I can, which is my touch point, and I can say, no, I'm sorry, I have a medical excuse and no, you can't ask me. Right. I have a leg. And that's what we've done in our notice is we've, we're, if anybody, any business people out there want it, Go to our Great Lakes Justice Center website. We're going to be posting this uh, this weekend and feel free to use this notice. But basically it says at the end that under privacy laws, you as a business owner cannot legally inquire into any medical problem a person might have. 
and they're not Thank required you. to tell you about that medical problem. Therefore, if you enter my business premises without a face covering and you state that you have an unspecified medical problem or condition, you're welcome to enter the, my business and, and engage in our services. So the way it works now under the new order yesterday from the governor is if you are not wearing a mask and you have a medical situation, you should just walk in, state to the person at the door or whoever you're dealing with, I have a medical condition, I can't wear a mask, and that's it. You don't have to say what it is. They cannot ask you what it is. <laughs> at you. least they should not. And then you can proceed ahead. So if anybody's interested out there and they want to see this, we'll be posting it at uh, greatlakesjc.org is, is our website, greatlakesjc.org. And feel free to, to print it off and use it as you'd like. All right. We have a call, we have a caller, Elaine, on the line. And Elaine, we have a couple minutes. Can you make it brief? I, I want to get you in. And Elaine hung up, and I'm so sorry, Elaine. I kept you waiting so long. So um, moving on then. And like I said, we have a couple of minutes left. Uh, I thought it was rather interesting that polling places are somehow or other virus-free areas that we don't have to wear a mask. What's going on there? <laughs> Again, it shows the, the picking and choosing and winners and losers and that sort of thing, you know, why it's okay for a dentist to work on you and be right in your mouth and doing stuff, but a gym owner can't open up their gym facilities and practice social distancing and have masks and that sort of thing. I, you know, it, it's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It makes no sense. And people need to understand too, if a private business says we want to require people to wear masks, you know, and do it regardless of whether the governor is ordering it or not, uh, a private business can do that. You still have that medical issue and they can't make you wear one for medical reasons. But if a private business chooses to do that, that's their call. And that's kind of how we are in all these issues that it should be left up to the private individual, to the private business. They should have their choice and their constitutional rights should not be infringed upon. So when I go to Menards as a corporation, if they make a rule, I don't get in without a mask. I don't get in without a mask. Then you go to Lowe's. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, you okay, go just want to be clear on that. Thank you. Yep. All right. Yep. Well, we've got oh maybe less than a minute left here. So I'd like to summarize. Folks, this has been your American Heritage. We've been talking to David Coleman of the Great Lakes Justice Center. He's the senior legal counsel. David, mention your website again. Yeah, it's Great Lakes JC for Justice Center. GreatLakesJC.org. All right. Thank you very much. So, like I said, we have about one minute left. And um, I think this is really uh, gone well. I appreciate this. I hope to have you back in the near future. And um, God bless us all, folks. We'll see you next time.